so good that we can be gathered like this and sit under God's word. If you're new and visiting us this morning, my name is Brendan. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to our church or what remains of it. We're so glad you could be here this morning. Uh, for our folks listening online, we know there's many of you. Uh, we're, we're thinking of you. We're praying for you. Uh, like Simon said, we would love to pray for you more. So if there's specifics, we can be praying. Please uh, send us an email, prayer at subgrace.org.au. We'd love to spend some time in praying for you. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, open up to Psalm number 50. Uh, Psalm number 50. If you're less familiar with the Bible, the, the book of Psalms, it's the biggest book in the Bible, it's right in the middle. Open it up to Psalm number 50. I'm going to pray for us uh, after I read this psalm and ask God to help us this morning as we preach his word. So Psalm 50, I'm going to read from verse 1. A psalm of Asaph. The mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. So the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Would you pray? 
Lord God, we want to thank you this morning for the privilege of sitting underneath your words. And this morning as we come to a, in many ways, challenging psalm, a difficult psalm, a strongly worded psalm, we ask and pray, Lord, would you give us a rightful, humble disposition to come with bended knee and heart softened, ready to listen to you. Lord God, would you change us through the preaching of your word this morning as your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Los Angeles Times writer Josh Getlin writes the following in his 1993 article entitled Law and Disorder. Tart, tough-talking Judge Judith Scheindlin presides over the grim pageant of dysfunction known as Manhattan's family court. A young crack mother, desperate to conceal her pregnancy, had locked herself in a tenement bathroom and given birth to a three-pound boy. As she pushed, he fell on the floor and broke his skull. The mother abandoned him like she had two previous babies. All were born addicted to crack. Can we do anything about this woman? Asked Judge Judith Scheindlin, her voice taut with anger. I know she's on the streets, but can we stop her from populating half the planet? A social worker flips through the mother's file and shrugs. Oh, maybe we could get her to carpet the bathroom floor next time, he says acidly. That's one idea. In family court, nothing is too outrageous. Everything that can go wrong with an American family plays out on its stage daily in a grim pageant of dysfunction. Battered infants, sexual abuse of teens, ugly custody fights, kids who rape at 10 and murder at 11, a world spinning out of control, mocking the legal system that seeks to contain it. I can't stand stupid and I can't stand slow, she snaps. I want first-time offenders to think of their appearance in my courtroom as the second worst experience of their lives. Circumcision being the first. She usually succeeds, writes Ketlin. That lady, sighs one odd youngster, is a monster. See, Judge Judith Scheindlin, who received national celebrity status following the publication of this very article, went on to become one of TV's greatest celebrities. And you guessed it, Judge Judy, who completed her 25th and final season last year. Scheindlin's courtroom style turned into amazing reality TV because she presented a fantasy. No moral conundrums, no technical issues, no weak cases, no lopsided representation, no bureaucratic obstacles, no mistakes, just swift justice every time. More, wrongdoers get a double dose of humiliation as Scheindlin gives her verdict time after time again. You see, Judge Judy is a fantasy. It's a fantasy that taps into a deep longing that we all have. We know that even in the West, where we have world-leading justice systems, our systems are deeply broken. And we have this deep desire for things to be put back to right. We have this deep desire for true justice. You see, the message of the Bible is wonderful news. 
We have a judge even greater than the wonderful fantasy of Judge Scheindlin, which has been brought to our screens for 25 years. And that is that God himself is the great judge of the whole earth, who is perfect in wisdom, perfect in insight and in justice, who promises to call every person to account. But our psalm this morning is a little different from the other psalms in that today, God is calling his own people to come before his throne and to face judgment. Uh, If you're a note taker this morning, if you're taking notes, I've entitled this message, Before the Throne of God. And I've got three points this morning, three points that simply follow the text, follow the psalm, but really one hope for us as God's people this morning, as we listen into this psalm, one hope that I believe is the burden of this passage, and that is this, that we would be the genuinely grateful people that God desires. That's the big thrust of this this psalm this morning. That's the big heart behind it. That's what God wants from us this morning is that we would be grateful, the genuinely grateful people that God desires for us. So let's dive into our passage in point number one, God summons the church. Uh, just by way of context on this psalm, it's a psalm of Asaph. Now, Asaph was King David's director of the sanctuary music. He was kind of the Bob Coughlin of David's court, for those more familiar with Sovereign Grace. And he was also known to be a prophet. Uh, this psalm was a psalm that could have been used at covenant renewal festivals, like the Shavuot festival, otherwise known as the festival of weeks, or the feast of weeks, that celebrates the renewal of the covenant after that incident in Exodus chapter 32 with the golden calf. It gets renewed in chapter 34. It's a psalm that calls Israel to repentance and genuine faithfulness to God, picturing God's people as appearing before God in his courtroom. And it's unique as a psalm, because it's more like an oracle from one of the prophetic books. Let's dive in and read that first verse from our psalm. Verse 1, it says the following. The mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. You see, the introduction of God in this psalm is unparalleled in all the psalms. The psalmist piles up names for the Lord as he introduces him into his courtroom. It's a threefold introduction. The mighty one, God, the Lord. In Hebrew, El, Elohim, Yahweh. El, translated as the mighty one, points to God as the great creator, sovereign over all beings in heaven and on earth. Elohim focuses in on God as the God over all of humanity. And Yahweh, the name he revealed to Israel, the one who has worked in and through Israel's history, the one who is now calling them to account. See, God appears and then calls the entire earth to appear before him from the rising of its sun to its setting, from the east to the west. And verse 2, the psalm goes on, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. This verse, at first, it kind of seems a little bit confusing to us and to our ears, but it contains some really important information that would have been so clear to the first people who heard this psalm. Firstly, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, or perfect in beauty. You see, Zion in the Bible uh, is the mountain in Jerusalem where God chose to later place his temple. Uh, At the time this was written, in David's day, it was a tabernacle or a tent. And the message is that God will speak to his own chosen people from his own chosen place, from the Holy Temple Mount, the place he had chosen to dwell, which is appropriately beautiful. More he shines forth. It's picturing 
light shining into darkness. You see, in the Bible, darkness is often a metaphor for wickedness. Uh, you do things in darkness without anybody seeing you at all. But when the lights come on, you're busted. The truth is revealed. You're exposed. And it's the same with God's presence in the courtroom. It's going to reveal the truth. He's going to eliminate his people. Read on with me in the psalm, verse 3. It says the following. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. See, Asaph sees God arriving in the courtroom ready to speak. And this image is meant to immediately remind you of God's appearance on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus chapter 19, in verse 16, uh, Moses writes the following. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up to the smoke like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. It's this incredible scene of the Lord descending in power on Mount Sinai to enter into agreement with Israel. And his people were so terrified in that moment, they plead with Moses for it to stop. And this is the manner in which God appears again in his courtroom. Light that shines forth is also a devouring fire, and it's highly symbolic. You see, consuming fire pitches the way in which fire removes impurities. You place a ceramic bowl, also known as a crucible, and you put raw metal inside it with a very hot fire, and it burns up the impurities. It purifies that metal. And that's what Asaph wants you to see in these opening verses, that God, the judge, is coming to shine his light and reveal the truth with his consuming fire to purify his people. And now God moves to fill his courtroom by calling witnesses and the defendants. Read with me the following in verses 4 through to 6. It says, He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. See, God calls to the heavens, implying all the heavenly beings, and to the earth, implying all the nations of the earth. He's calling them to appear as witnesses in his courtroom. In verse 6 says, the heavens respond, declaring his righteousness. This is a Hebrew word that simply means his justice. The heavens respond saying, yes, God is just. You know, people love watching Judge Judy, like I said, because she she just so quickly deals out justice on everyone. But I bet you she deals out justice so quickly that she often got it wrong. You can't just deal out judgments quickly without error. Well, the heavenly realms declare that this judge is pure in his justice. He's never erring. He's always perfect. Okay, here's the question, though. Who's on trial? Who's the defendant? It says so in verse 5. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Gather to me my faithful ones. More literally, it means the one who practices chesed. That's the word commonly translated as steadfast love in the Hebrew Bible. 
It's a word that's hard to translate because it's a combination of love and loyalty at the same time. God is saying, gather to me the community that is loyal to me in love. Those who have made an agreement with me by sacrifice. So who are the defendants on trial? Well, it's God's own people. It's the community of worshippers. Likely that the first people to hear this psalm were Israelites in David's day, living in the promised land, possibly with the tabernacle and ark on Mount Zion, who were trying to follow the instructions, the Torah that God had given Moses, regularly coming to sacrifice in his tabernacle, that tent that was functioning as a temporary temple. And God is saying, I'm calling you into my courtroom. You are on trial. And indirectly, 3,000 years later, he's also wanting us as his people to listen into this trial and to allow his light to expose us and to allow his consuming fire to purify us and the charges he will lay to convict us as we listen in. And so we turn now to the first of the two charges that God will lay before his people, which are my points two and three of this message. So let's dive into point number two, and that is that, or charge number one, that God desires thankfulness and not empty ritual. You know, if you're newer to following Jesus or you wouldn't normally describe yourself as a Christian, there is a common perception in our culture that Christianity is all about doing. Doing loads of good things, giving generously, volunteering, reading the Bible, praying, attending church, going to small groups during the week, teaching events, so on and so forth. Or perhaps not doing a bunch of things, like not drinking or not having sex or not going to parties or not being about including others or just not having fun. And if that's your perception of Christianity, this passage will confuse you. Because God is addressing a people who outwardly were doing everything right, but God is scathing in his criticism. Read with me verses 7 and 8. He says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. See, God summons his Old Testament church to appear before him in his royal courtroom. But it's not because of your sacrifices that I'm going to rebuke you, he says. No, they're constant. Okay, that's interesting. But what's God's criticism of his own people then? Well, firstly, it's that they presumed that they had things to offer God that he needs. Read with me verse 9 through 11. It says this, I will not accept a bull from your house and goats from your fold. Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. See, God's people were coming to the tabernacle to offer sacrifices, all the while thinking that somehow God was in need of a share of their abundance. And God is saying, I own it all already. Everything this world has is mine. All the bulls, all the goats, all the animals in the forest, all the cattle, all the birds, everything that moves in the field. That that word, it's an umbrella term that refers to all the insects that ruin fields. The weevils, the crickets, the locusts. God is saying, even all the insects belong to me. God is saying to these people, what could you possibly offer to me that I don't already own? 
See, the Bible teaches that God has existed from all eternity as a father who loves his son by the Holy Spirit. God is a perfect loving relationship. Limitless in power, limitless in wisdom, limitless in knowledge. There is absolutely nothing that he needs. And God is saying, if you think you can impress me by just going through the motions with these sacrifices, think again. I don't need them and I won't accept them. Now, before we quickly write off these Israelites and kind of tie our fingers at them and say, oh, no, you silly Israelites, I think it would be wise to pause and consider how we can similarly fall into thinking God needs us as well. You know, maybe you're at high school, you've got non-Christian friends, and you're constantly feeling guilty of your failings in sharing the gospel with them. And quietly, you believe that there is no way your friends will come to faith without you. Maybe you're a person serving in a million different rosters because quietly you think, how will this church cope without me? Maybe you're a parent with a strong-willed child and you're losing hope because your efforts seem to produce no change while quietly believing, how will this child change without me? Maybe you have certain people who you find it nearly impossible to say no to. And you tell yourself, I need to care for them, or how will they cope? It's the danger of pastoral ministry to have a savior complex. I must do X, Y, or Z, rather than seeing that actually Jesus is the only person that person needs, and not me. Let's be clear this morning, church. God delights to use his children for glorious purposes. That brings him great joy. But he does not need you. He does not need you to see his kingdom come and his will done on earth. That is the unshakable destiny of this world because God has determined to do it. And that's the first mistake. They presume that they had things to offer God that he needs. But not just that, they presume that like the idols of other nations... God could be manipulated by their efforts. Read with me verses 12 and 13. God says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fullness of mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? You know, in pagan thinking, gods have appetites that need to be fulfilled. You offer food and sacrifices to them. They consume them. It fills their appetites. You know, if you've ever uh, visited, like, a Hindu friend, like Charlotte and I have some Hindu friends, they often will have shrines in their home where they do exactly that. Uh, they offer things to their shrines in their home to feed their gods. You satisfy the idol with your offering, they will be pleased, and then they will reward you back with safe travel, good harvest, health, or wealth. And God says, the world and its fullness is mine. I own it all. Even if I did find myself hungry, I definitely would not come to you looking for food. God's point is, you can't buy my favor. You can't coerce me with your efforts. You know, have you ever had that kind of nagging feeling, friends, like that something turned out badly in your life because you didn't do enough? Like, like what if only I just like prayed a little bit more? 
What if I just fasted like a little bit more? What if I just read the Bible just a little bit more? What if I just had a little bit more faith? Then things surely would have been different. Your church or your ministry would be growing more. That friend wouldn't have walked away. You wouldn't still be sick. Your marriage would still be intact. Well, God calls us, friends, to come to him in prayer. And God does genuinely, graciously answer our prayers. But he cannot be manipulated. He rules and he reigns sovereignly over all. He sees all of time laid out before him. He can never be surprised. All the possibilities of history are before his throne. His power, his might, his wisdom, his goodness are limitless. And he has determined good purposes for all his children, even where his hand is hidden. Nothing can possibly deter him from enacting his good purposes, even our unfaithfulness. See, God is not like the idols of the nations who were thought to be able to be bribed, who would fill their bellies and get, and as a result, you would get your heart's desire. God is the loving parent. He's the father who desires a relationship with his children. You can't win his affection with gifts. You already have it through Christ. You know, I was just thinking about this the last couple of weeks. You know, Charlotte and I have a, a relative in our family who really struggles with mental illness. And as a result, this person often buys us expensive gifts to keep us on side. But let me tell you something. That is so incredibly grieving because they're already so loved. Well, how then, is the question, does God want his people to relate to him? Well, we see it in verse 14 and 15. He says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. God wants his people to simply give thanks. That word there is a Hebrew word, todah. It means a thank offering. It's a public acknowledgement or praise to God for what he's done alongside a peace offering. It's a sacrifice of a peace offering was meant to show that the person was at peace with God. They had needed God. God had answered their prayer and they were praising him for meeting their need. But this next line is a little bit confusing to our 21st century ears. Perform your vows, it says. I mean, Okay, what does that actually mean? What's that all about? Well, if you read many of the Psalms uh, in the Old Testament, you'll realize that Old Testament saints often vowed praise to God for answering their prayers. This isn't manipulation, but it's an expression of faith in the goodness and power of God. They'll say something like this, save me and I will worship you. You know, in the very next Psalm after this one, we, we see that exactly in Psalm 51. In Psalm 51 verse 14, uh, King David says, Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation. And then what he says next, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. A prayer asking for help and a promise to praise God. And God is saying simply, come and publicly give thanks for all I've done for you. Come to the sanctuary and keep your promise to praise me, knowing I've heard your prayers. In verse 15, he simply summarizes the whole pro- what the whole process will look like. He says, as my children, all you'll need to do is to come to me for help when you're in need. I'll answer your prayers and you can come into my sanctuary 
and give thanks? Well, church, here's a really difficult question for us to answer. Is that how we've been relating to God? Is our relationship with God primarily marked by thankfulness to him for all he has done for us? Thankfulness for his wonderful character and love. Can I press you a little more? Or is our relationship mainly defined by a belief that we're indispensable in his kingdom? An essential component. More, if I press this a little harder, do we use our lives and our prayers more as a way of attempting to manipulate him? To get things that we perceive we need and want from him? See, God doesn't want an empty ritual. There is nothing we could ever give to him that he needs. And he cannot be manipulated. He is simply our loving father who wants a relationship with us and the praise that is due his name. And that brings us to our third and final point, the second charge God has against his people. And that is this, that God desires faithfulness and not outward show. See, it's possible to live your life in such a way that it has the appearance of being altogether. You know, what's so chilling about Ted Bundy is he did just that. He's college educated, training as an attorney. He was young, he was good looking, he was articulate, and he was also a serial killer. And most of us will know people who will later confess, oh, I was just living a lie. And what people mean by that is that they were hiding the truth about themselves from other people. They were being a hypocrite. They were acting, they were playing a part, but not being honest. See, it's possible to live your life as a Christian for show only. To go through the motions, but not actually to be genuine. In our psalm, God addresses those in the Old Testament church who were coming to the temple and worshipping God, but it was just for show. And Jesus summarizes what God actually desires most from us when he combines Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 in the following. He says this in Matthew chapter 22. He says to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that's the problem with this community in this Psalm Psalm 50. These members of the community, firstly, they were coming to God in worship, but they didn't love God at all. Verse 16, God says the following. But to the wicked, God says, what right do you have to recite my statutes or take my covenant upon your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. God begins by addressing the wicked, or perhaps better, the ungodly in the assembly. They're just reciting God's laws. They're professing to be faithful to God's instruction. But it's all for show. Actually, they hate being corrected by God. And they take his words and they just kind of cast them behind themselves like rubbish. They despise the things that God says. See, it's possible to be coming into church every week. And it's all about keeping up appearances. 
to be coming to church every week, but to have no genuine love for the Lord or the things that he says. But secondly, these members of the community came into worship, but they didn't even love their neighbors. Verse 18 says the following. God says this, he says, If you see a thief, you're pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and you speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. They're pleased or take pleasure in people who practice or in the practice of stealing from others. They hang out with people who are betraying their partners and just sleeping around. They're careless with their words. They say nasty things to other people. Their tongue frames deceit. Literally, their tongue weaves deceit. They're forming a web of lies with their speech. They were deceiving others and ripping them off. This word slander, it's, it probably relates to a word that means to find a blemish or fault. The idea is that they slander, they tear down, they constantly criticize and speak harsh words against even family members. Slandering their own brothers with no love and care for even people in their very own family. Rather than loving their neighbors, they are trying to destroy them. You see, these members of the Old Testament community, they were fakes. They were just putting on a show of faithfulness while running hard away from God and they thought they were going to get away with it. Verse 21, God says this, These things you have done, and I've been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. You see, these church members had just been living a lie. They'd been putting on a show at the temple, all the while running from God, and they thought they were going to get away with it just fine. More since they hadn't been confronted by God or told off in any way, they assumed God mustn't be angry with them at all. In the words of commentator Alan Ross, they've confused God's patience with his permission. And God says now, you're in my courtroom and I'm telling you publicly that what you're doing is wrong. And we read on in verse 22, he says this. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. And to the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. God says, pay careful attention to this, you who forget God. By forgetting God, he doesn't mean that they simply forgot that he exists, but they were not acting upon what they knew. Speaking as though God was real with one voice and living as though he doesn't exist all the while. And God says, pay careful attention to what I'm about to say, lest I tear you apart. It's a word used to describe the way a wild beast tears apart its prey into pieces. Okay, well, what does God want from the hypocrites in his congregation? Well, simply this. He wants them to offer thank offerings as their sacrifices. He wants them to ta He wants them to go to the temple to declare his goodness publicly and make a peace offering. He wants them to simply to be a thankful people who love him for who he is and give him praise, not simply believing that they're needed or attempting to manipulate him. More, he promises to save, to rescue, that is from being torn apart to pieces by him, anyone who orders their way rightly, who aligns their life in accordance with his will. He says to the person who loves the Lord with all their heart, mind, and soul, who loves his instruction to the person who loves his neighbor faithfully as themselves. To this person, God says, I will show you my salvation and you will not be torn to pieces. God is saying to his people, I don't care about the outward show. I don't care about how things look superficially. I want genuine faithfulness. 
But here is the really difficult question for us this morning, church. Is that how we've honestly been living? With genuine faithfulness when no one else is looking? This is a huge issue for us. Because we are not that sort of people. If you ask most people in our neighborhood whether they're good people, most people will say, yeah, of course, I'm not perfect, but I'm essentially good. But pry a little bit deeper. And we don't live up to our own standards, let alone God's. More, the main way to evaluate our goodness is not by how well we've kept the, the great commandment to, is, is by how well we've kept the great commandment to love the Lord God with all our heart, mind, soul, strength. And the truth is we live in a neighborhood where people feel like they don't even need God at all. We believe that we've got where we are on our own. And so we're naturally thankless towards God. If we're religious, we're performing empty rituals, thinking God needs them to bend his will towards our will. And naturally, we're faithless. Even if we're not religious, we're so often putting on a show to seem like we're better than the people, better people than the people we truly are. But here's where the wonderful news comes in. That rather than tearing us apart, God sent his one and only son. That the eternal son of God became man to save us. That he lived a life of true thankfulness and love towards God. That he walked blamelessly, loving God with his whole heart and loving others to the point of being willing to die. So much so that the Hebrews says even the cross was the joy set before him. And that he went to the cross and he was torn apart for us. And none came to deliver him. And so hanging with nails through his hands on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, if you stand before Judge Judy and tell her that you're thankful for her hearing your case, and if you praise her for being an excellent judge, for being a great entertainer, I tell you something, you will not get off the hook. If you have done wrong, you must pay for justice to occur. And how much more before the shining light, the devouring tempest of God Almighty. And yet he took that penalty upon himself. And he died and he rose from the grave. That those who ask his forgiveness for their wrongdoing and entrust their lives to his direction are joined to him. Jesus ordered his way rightly. He lived and he died in our place that we might be saved. And the truth is that in light of this, you still can't just will yourself to be a grateful person. And you can't simply make yourself love God so much that you'll want to follow him with everything you have. But when you see what God is truly like in the gift of Jesus, and when you entrust yourself to him, He sends the Holy Spirit into your heart and he transforms you slowly from the inside out. And then slowly but surely, he begins to order your way rightly and over the years grow you more and more full of thankfulness for who he is and what he's done. And so, friends, would we begin this year with eyes firmly fixed on Jesus and be the genuinely grateful people that God desires?
Now, as we close um, our time together with this message, I just wanted to end with something this psalm reminded me of, or a person in particular. Uh, a way in which this psalm just reminded me of something God has done in this congregation. In fact, it just reminded me so much of my brother, Nick Gordon. You know, if you have more recently joined our church, you might not know Nick's story. But Nick and his girlfriend at the time, Yvonne, began coming to this church around 2013. And the reason why they became, or started coming to church was not because Nick wanted to be here. It was because it mattered to Yvonne. And in Nick's words, he just wanted to tick that box, to come to church, make her happy. When she was happy enough to marry him, he'd be gone. And you could know that because you'd, you could never talk to the guy because he'd come to church, he'd sit at the back, and he would just bolt. As soon as the service ended, he's grabbing Yvonne, pulling her out of church. He didn't want to talk to anybody. He was going, he was gone. It was just simply an empty ritual for him. But God caught a hold of his heart, and he saw Christ, and he entrusted himself to him. And now Nick is one of the most considerate, servant-hearted, grateful men you'll meet. And it's all because he saw Jesus. Would you pray with me? Well, God, we want to thank you so much for your word. It's a rich word. It's a powerful word. It's a life-changing word, and we praise you. Thank you for allowing us to be challenged this morning by this psalm, a strongly worded psalm, but a word from you. And Lord God, we pray this morning that you would help us to firmly fix our eyes on Christ. Lord, you know that so often we're not the grateful people we ought to be. We don't love you with our whole heart as we should do. And yet thank you for the Lord Jesus and his once for all sacrifice. That means that we can simply come to you and give thanks. Give thanks for who you are and give thanks for what you've done. Lord, help us to be a grateful people. Not just grateful for show, but genuinely so. And all because of the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you.